following audio is from a sermon series entitled The Mystery of Marriage. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Ephesians 5, verses 21 through 33. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish, In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. So we are in our third week in a seven-week series on marriage. Um, Each week we're going to be building off of what was said in the weeks before, so it will be helpful to have a brief review of what we talked about the last two weeks uh, before we jump into our focus for today, which is the primacy of of marriage, all right? Um, this, we are preaching from Ephesians chapter five and kind of uniquely, we wanna, get, we wanna get this in your mind, we're starting in verse 21, where normally if you've heard a sermon on marriage, it probably starts in verse 22. But we think um, verse 21 is where we should start, which verse 21 says this, submitting to one another out of reverence, for Christ. Now, what Paul is getting at in this text is the gospel changes the way we relate to our spouse. Okay? In a sense, this is Paul's don't try this at home speech. He's literally saying, what I'm about to say, wives submitting, husbands loving, etc., etc., this can't be done without the Spirit. This can't be done without the gospel. So if you're not a believer this morning and you're coming in to check things out, we welcome you. We're excited for you. We're glad that you're here. We hope you learned some great things this morning, but you're not going to be able to walk out and just put this, into, put this sermon into application unless you first believe in Christ in your heart. The gospel is necessary to live out what we're going to preach this morning. Okay, the first week was a little bit about that. So we see here right away, Paul's talking about two people in marriage submitting to one another. You first, no, you first, no, you first, no, you first, right? Now, where do we get that from? This is who God is. When you read that profession of faith today that said God, in God exists everything that is good and God only rejoices in himself, you could be offended by that. What kind of arrogant God is that? The only God there is. What what do I mean by that? God is a trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Each one submits to the other. The Son submits to the Father. The Spirit submits to the Son and the Father. C.S. Lewis calls it a kind of dance where they're loving one another well, right? Jesus only does what the Father asks, right? It's this mutual submission that makes God God. God mutually submits to himself. God is a trinity, a community in himself, and he... They each love the other. That's why it's not arrogant because there's three in one. They can love the other, submit the needs to the other. This is where we get this idea of submitting to one another by the power of spirit, of the spirit, in reverence and awe of Jesus. We look at God, we look at Jesus, we look at the way he lived and and that changes our heart so now I can lay my life down and submit my preferences to my wife. Now, What that means is the gospel of Jesus foundationally changes the way two sinners relate to one another. We are no longer 
going into relationships, trying to get them to serve us. We are choosing because of what Jesus has done for us to serve them. Or maybe we could even say to serve God by serving them. Now, one way I want to illustrate the power of this, when two people submitting to God submit to one another through the power of the gospel, this gives a marriage shocks. Okay, when I was 16, my parents blessed me with a 1985 GMC S15. It was awesome. Little five-speed pickup truck, five-speed. You guys know what those, remember those things? They were awesome, all right? But the thing about this truck is when you ran over a piece of gravel, you could feel it in your spine, right? It was a little bitty pickup truck. And if you've ever ridden in a little bitty pickup truck, it's, it's about like this, right? And I didn't really, I didn't care. I was driving. That's all that matters back then, right? I was driving. I was loving it. And I didn't really realize kind of how bad the shocks were in this little truck until my parents, when I was in college, bought a Lincoln Continental. Now, if you've ever ridden in a Lincoln Continental, it's about like riding in a boat on the road. You just kind of, <laughs> right? You can run over a human. What was that? I don't know. It's just, it's smooth, right? You don't know. The shocks were amazing. Now, this is why, like, you know, older people probably like to drive those things, right? They don't know when they're bumping into stuff and just, <laughs> just cruising around, right? Now, What's the reality? The, the shocks on those things are amazing, right? It, it gives you the ability to, to run over potholes, to drive on Locust Street, right? To drive on Locust Street without, you know, bouncing yourself out of the car, right? Now, here's the reality. The gospel, when we believe it, when two Christians are believing it, it gives a marriage or a, it gives this marriage shock absorbers. It allows you to hit potholes, there's potholes in all of life, and not let them blow the tires out and ruin the, ruin the marriage and ruin your life. It gives you the ability to kind of coast and float over these things without them ruining your marriage. Now, what are three common potholes that the gospel gives us shocks to absorb? The first one is this. The gospel gives you the ability to hear criticism without being crushed. See, the primary problem with your marriage is your own self-centeredness. We, get, we said that in the first one. And when you put two self-centered sinners into a marriage, they both start seeing the other person's self-centeredness and going, hey, you're self-centered. And when you have two people pointing at each other about their own self-centeredness, the other person's self-centeredness is the problem, in my mind, right? I can see your self-centeredness. That's not good. That's a problem. And so the person starts speaking some criticism. Hey, why are you late all the time? I've had this dinner on the, on the stove for 15 minutes or on the table. 15. You said you were going to be home at 5.30. It's 7.15. You didn't call. That's a problem. You're self-centered. And then he's like, I'm working hard to provide for the family. Or she working hard to provide the family. Why don't you give me some slack? Whoa, two self-centered sinners pointing at each other. But the gospel gives me the ability, gives us the ability to hear criticism without it crushing us. Why? Because the gospel says that I'm worse than I thought I was. I'm more self-centered than I've ever imagined. But simultaneously, I'm more loved than I can ever dream about. So Jesus accepts us sinful and yet makes us righteous because of his sacrifice his death on the cross and his resurrection. So when I know I'm already sinful, my wife goes, you're late again. You lied. I go, guilty. I don't have to get defensive and argue and prove my worth because I'm such a hard provider for the family. Give me some slack. No, no, I can say, you're right. That was self-centered of me. That was sinful of me. That was wrong. I apologize. And it doesn't send my life into a tailspin where I have to prove my worth, Right? Secondly, so first, the gospel gives you the ability to hear criticism without being crushed. Secondly, the gospel gives you the ability to give criticism without crushing the other person. So one of the worst things for marriages, and many, many people have this marriage, and it kind of, it's kind of um, 
It's a counterfeit Christian marriage where they don't actually, they don't actually point each other's sin out. They actually don't criticize each other. They just kind of, oh, it's like a leave it to beaver marriage where they actually don't talk about what really the elephants in the room, right? Well, the gospel says, no, 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 you're in love with a sinner and, and Jesus is at work redeeming that sinner, sinner into his image and therefore he's going to use you to point out some things. Honey, when you say you sh you're going to be home at 515 and you don't, there's a problem there. Right? That's just one example. But I don't have to give that criticism in such a way that it crushes somebody. You always do this. That's just like you. Just like your mother. <laughs> right? And, the, and you just feel the weight. Right? And you say that all the time. Just like your dad. Right? Or whatever it is. Back and forth. Two self-centered Sinners pointing at each other. No, no, the, the Bible, the gospel helps me see the future glory of my spouse. She's a work in progress. God's making her more like himself. And yes, she's got some sin. And yes, I've got some sin. So I can gently confront her, right? I can gently cri critique. I don't like the word criticize necessarily without trying to crush her. In this text, it says that husbands, you're called to cleanse her with the washing with water of the word. That's what you're called to do. That means disciple, gently, lovingly. Third thing, so we can, the gospel gives us the ability to hear criticism without being crushed, give criticism without crushing, and lastly, the ability to forgive without constantly bringing it back up. That's hard to do. Christians can do it because God has forgiven the unforgivable in us. And because I've been forgiven so much, I can forgive my spouse, whatever it is that they've done. The gospel gives me this ability. Now, why are these three things so hard to do? And how does the gospel help us? Well, most people are looking to their spouse to give them something that only God can actually give them. We don't realize this. When Joel says, we have idols, we've worshiped idols, some of us can superficially say, I don't worship idols. I don't have any little statues laying around that I worship. But the Old Testament talks about that idolatry is often the idols of the heart. Something I'm looking to for my meaning and my purpose and my joy and my love and my satisfaction more than God himself. And in the gospel, we see that God has already given you everything you need for life and godliness, says in Peter. See, but unfortunately, many Christians don't understand how to apply the gospel to their lives and apply the gospel to their marriages. I often hear in the midst of a marital turmoil or single people fighting with one another and trying to figure out if they're right for one another or a single person looking to, to find the one, I often, when I'm counseling them to remember the gospel, they often say something to me like, I know how much God loves me, I get that, but why doesn't this person love me? In the moment, as harsh as it may sound, they don't understand how much God loves them. They don't understand the gospel. They, they aren't seeing things clearly. They don't understand spiritual reality. See, the gospel isn't just something that you believe that will take you to heaven someday. The gospel is the good news that the God of the universe loves you. So much so that he sent his son, Jesus, to pay your debt, forgive your sins, adopt you into his family, call you his own, seal you with his spirit. And now he's in heaven, Zephaniah says, singing over you as he sanctifies you by making you more and more holy like Jesus. See, if you are in Christ, that's the word Paul likes to use, in Christ, you are his beloved and that changes everything. Now just think about that for a second. The God who opened his mouth and creation spilled out. The God who fearfully and wonderfully created you in your mother's womb. The God who bled and died on the cross for you to make you holy and to make you his own. Has set his love on you 
And you shrug that off and you say, yeah, but I won't feel loved until this person loves me. Don't you see that this is your foundational problem? You're looking for human beings to give you something that only God can give you. You are not seeing things clearly. You are spiritually blind to one of the greatest gifts of the gospel. Basically, you are undervaluing the love of the eternal king of kings and overvaluing the affection of another poor, pitiful sinner like you. St. Augustine would call this inordinate loves. The love that you should care about, you demean, and the love that you shouldn't really care about, you exalt and elevate. But, now why do you do this? This is the default mode of the human heart. We are all, every one of us, idolaters at heart. We say to ourselves, if I get that thing, then I'll be happy, then I'll be satisfied, then I'll be fulfilled. For some of us, it's a career. We just put our head down and we set our sights on the top of the org chart and we say, when I get there, I'm gonna be somebody. I'll prove to myself, I'll prove to my parents, I'll prove to my friends, I'll prove to my college roommate that I'm somebody. And some of us, it's a relationship. When that person loves me, then I'll feel like a success. Then I'll be fulfilled. Now, every, you, this isn't just for some folks. Everyone does this. Every single person, even if they claim to not be religious, they, we are all human beings because we're made in the image of God. We're made to be worshipers. We're all religious. We're all looking to someone or something for our ultimate value. We have to. And now listen, the gospel is the only thing that gives us what we're really looking for, an intimate relationship with God, to be fully known and to be fully loved. See, because of Jesus, I am accepted by God and my acceptance is not found in my spouse. That frees me. When I know I'm sinful and yet I'm loved all the way to the core, all the way down, that frees me to accept my own weaknesses and sins, to confess them, to repent and work to change them through the power of the Spirit. I don't have to get defensive about them. Oh yeah? You think that about me? Let me tell you something about you. I know none of you speak that way to your spouse. You speak only in Proverbs. I get it. See, and it also, guys, listen, so, so it frees me to not be defensive, but it also gives me the ability to lovingly confront my spouse. I know many men and many women who are afraid to confront their wife or afraid to confront their husband. And out of fear, they neglect their God-given responsibility to disciple their spouse, to wash them with the water of the word because she might blow up. He might get upset. The gospel gives me the backbone to step into that for the good of my spouse. Only the gospel frees us to not be crushed by criticism and then to give criticism without crushing our spouse. So that was a little bit of application from my first sermon. Then last week, Dr. Alex did a great job talking about the definition of marriage. We saw from this scripture that marriage is meant to be a covenant and a covenant, oh, covenant. It's a legal, oh, binding, oh, public declaration or promise before God to be loving no matter how I feel. Alex talked a little bit about it. If you get married at Sacred City, you cannot write your own vows, period. Why? Because we are swimming in the cultural waters of emotionalism. And when we write our own vows, they're always about how we feel right now. I feel so good about you. Every time I look at you, roses just pop out in the background. Light sinks down from heaven. 
I'm so excited to be with you. But a covenant says, I promise to be there and love you when the feelings wear off. Sickness, right? Death, right? Wealth, poor, whatever comes, I'm going to be there. It isn't a contract. You do this, I'll do that. You make my favorite dessert and I'll clean up after it. Nice contract. Nice contract. You provide, I'll give you kids. Nice contract. I've met many, many marriages that are nothing more than a contract. That's self-centered. If you do this, I'll do that. I'll meet your needs as long as you meet my needs. It's a contractual marriage. If one person stops fulfilling their end of the bargain, the other person leaves. As long as you give me what I want, I'll give you what you want. That is not a Christian marriage. Nor is a covenant based in our current feelings. When someone says, Dr. Alex covered this a little bit, I don't need a piece of paper to love you. What they're really saying is, talking about the marriage contract, what, they really, what they're really saying is, I don't love you enough to make this relationship exclusive and permanent. They're saying, my current feelings are enough to prove my love for you right now. Now, that is just a foolish and scary idea. What is going to happen when the in love feelings wear off? When the passion begins to fade and you start to get on each other's nerves, what are you going to do when the self-centeredness begins to arise and they, be, they begin to point out your self-centeredness and you begin to point out theirs? What are you going to do when the relationship becomes difficult and real hard work? If your relationship is based in your feelings, you will most likely leave that relationship and look for better feelings somewhere else. And you know what? That will almost guarantee you will never find lasting love. A deeper happiness that comes only through being in a covenant marriage. See, if your feelings determine how you act towards your spouse, when the feelings wear off, which they always will, you stop pursuing them. You back off. And when you back off and you stop pursuing, things cool even to a greater dimension. You stop sacrificing for them. But God, the love that God teaches Christians and the love God gives us through the power of the gospel, God says you are actually being more loving toward a person when you are doing loving things for them, when you're acting loving, kind, and faithful, even when you don't feel like it. And one of the most powerful repercussions of doing love, like being loving toward a person, is that as you're self-sacrificing yourself, as you're sacrificially loving another person, somehow it works back in and begins to change your feelings for them. As you give yourself to them, when you keep your eye on the gospel, you find your heart more and more invested in them. Why? Well, God says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Where you invest your time and invest your emotions and invest your effort, there your heart will be. The more you invest your time, your sacrifice, your devotion, the more your heart is going to get involved. And as you love them through good deeds, you begin to love them more and more emotionally but this love is different from falling in love. Now, if you're a parent, you should know this. The first few years of your kid's life is nothing but investing, nothing but pouring out. You, the day you got the baby, you, you were in love. You fell in love, right? But then the 162nd time at 2 a.m. you had to wake up, there were no feelings of in love, Right? There was commitment. There was something deeper. And the more you love, the more you invest in that relationship, the more you love them, right? Now, every parent knows this because every parent is tempted because we can 
put our heart into our relationship with our kids, every parent is tempted to idolize our kids. And you know you're idolizing your kid when you're expecting them to give something to you other than respect like they owe to God, right? But if you're expecting them to fill your love tank, you'll find yourself saying, don't you know what I've given for you? Don't you know what I've sacrificed for you? The first time your child says, you don't love me. You're like, oh. Every late night flashes before your mind. Your bank account and how much you've spent on them over their life flashes. Oh, just the audacity, right? And they believe it with everything. You hate me. Right? And you're just shocked. I've done nothing but give, give, give. Oh, your idols are showing. You're expecting from a child what you can only get from God. Your meaning, your purpose, your validation, your love. See, but parents, don't we know? The more we sacrifice for our kids, the more we act loving towards them, even when they're not returning it, the more we love them right? Now, C.S. Lewis, I've got a really long quote. C.S. Lewis has a great quote in Mere Christianity about this kind of principle, this falling kind of, this falling in love and then kind of falling out of love. What do you want to call it? Oh, there we go. I got a long one. People get from books the idea that if you married the right person, you may expect to go on being in love forever, as a result, when they find that they are not, they think this proves that they have made a mistake and are entitled to a change, not realizing that when they have changed, the glamour will presently go out of the new love just as it went out of the old one. In this department of life, as in other, every other, thrills come at the beginning and do not last. The sort of thrill a boy has at the first idea of flying will not go on when he has joined the RAF, Royal Air Force, and is really learning to fly. The thrill you feel on first seeing some delightful place dies away when you really go to live there. Does this mean it would be better not to learn to fly and not to live in the beautiful place? By no means. In both cases, if you look, if you go through with it, the dying away of the thrill, the first thrill, will be compensated will be compensated for by a quieter and more lasting kind of interest. What is more, and I can hardly find words to tell you how important I think this is, it is just the people who are ready to submit to the loss of the thrill and settle down to the sober interest who are then most likely to meet new thrills in some quiet, different direction. The man who has learned to fly and become a good pilot will suddenly discover music. The man who settled down to live in the beauty spot will discover gardening. This is, I think, one little part of what Christ mean, meant by saying that a thing will not really live unless it dies first. It is simply no good trying to keep any thrill. That is the very worst thing you can do. Let the thrill go. Let it die away. Go on through that period of death into the quieter interest and happiness that follow. And you will find you are living in a world of new thrills all the time. But if you decide to make thrills your regular diet and you try to prolong them artificially, they will all get weaker and weaker and fewer and fewer and you will be a bored, disillusioned old man for the rest of your life. It is because so few people understand this that you find many middle-aged men and women maundering about their lost youth at the very age when new horizons ought to be appearing and new doors opening all around them. It is much better fun to learn to swim than to go on endlessly and hopefully, hopelessly trying to get back the feeling you had when you first went paddling as a small boy. See, C.S. Lewis is saying the feelings of being in love, they're intense, they're passionate, but they're meant to give way to a quieter more solid type of love. And if you're chasing the thrill, you're going to lose that long-term love that we're all really looking for. See, this is why marriage is meant to be permanent. It's meant to last a lifetime. It's meant to keep two people in a relationship 
through difficult seasons, working together to love one another, even when at times they don't feel like it. And our culture says, if you're loving, if you're acting loving towards someone and you don't feel like it, it's not genuine. It's not being true to yourself and you should never do that. You have to be true to what you feel inside. That's foolish. Real love sacrifices, acts loving when it doesn't feel like it. That's what real love does. And the beautiful thing is that after seasons of darkness, the light shines out all the clearer. After winter seasons of doing loving things toward one another with very little emotion, a new spring of delight can open up as you are sitting together over coffee and you realize just how much you still love one another. It's a special feeling if you've never felt that. Working hard all the time, focus on other things, kids, work, planning, all this kind of stuff. And then you get a date night or you get a time to get away and you get a second and you're like, I still really love this woman. And I think she kind of likes me too. And it's different, right? That new feeling doesn't feel like the honeymoon. It's different, but it's good. It's not as hot and intense as the early days, but there's something about it that's actually better. It's more settled. It's more mature. It's more secure. It's love that has been through wars and earned scars. It's, been, it's a love that's been earned through years of being loving towards one another. And can I just say, can you imagine how screwed up our life would be if the feelings of falling in love lasted forever? Do you remember what that was like? I know we talk, oh, it was so great. Kind of, unless for everyone around you, that was miserable. <laughs> you stop showing up from work on time, right? You let the studies go, right? All you talked about was him or her right? You became a poet all of a sudden, writing romantic. Like, what is happening to this guy? What is happening to this person? If we stayed in love, no work would get done. <laughs> Nobody would join the military, right? Now, I don't know who's going to guard us, but it doesn't matter because I'm in love right now, right? It, it would be miserable. <laughs> We'd be great at making kids, terrible at raising them. I don't know, kids. I'm just into your mom right now. <laughs> Stay busy. All right. So, if you're keeping score, that was the last two weeks. <laughs> this week, we're going to take a look at this passage, and we're going to be fo focusing on verse 31. And it says this. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, that word, that, that Greek word there, hold fast, in Isaiah, that's used of soldering two pieces of metal together. Okay? So it's not like a loosey-goosey, we're kind of holding each other fast. This is two people being soldered together, making one new person, one new entity. The two become one. It's not just in sex. See, in marriage, two people are soldering themselves together and they've done that through, their, through everything in their life, through their bank accounts to become one, through their households to become one, through their families to become one, right? Two people. And then once they're married, they do with their bodies what they've already done with every other aspect of their life. Two are committed, soldered together, become one. So, Paul, quoting Moses in G Genesis, and Jesus quotes this as well, says, when you get married, you are to leave and cleave. That's, that's the uh, King James Version. Or leave and hold fast. God is showing us here, for those of us who are married or will be married, that marriage is meant to be the top relational priority in our life after we get married. I was reading a sermon this week from Tim Keller from 1991, almost 30 years ago, and it was still great. 
And he commented on this passage in its context from the book of Genesis. In the beginning, God created. You remember he created male and female. He created them. And he says this, isn't it interesting that in the garden, when God created the garden of Eden, created mankind, he did not place a mother and her child in the garden. I would argue today that a woman and her body or a woman and her child is the most protected entity in our society, has the most rights. Don't you dare come between a woman and her child. In the garden, though, God puts a man and a woman, not a woman and her child, not a, not a man and a woman and a child, like start them off with, right, five kids, just start them off with it. No, 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 husband and wife. This shows us that according to God, for those who get married, marriage is meant to be the most foundational and primary relationship of your life. It should have primacy. Human relationships, it should have primacy. Your relationship with your spouse is to take precedent over all your other relationships. Now, there's many who believe that Marriage is an outdated institution. It was written to reflect the cultural values and norms of its time. And people who say that have no understanding of the biblical context that this is written in. See, when this was written, it had shocking implications. This was extremely countercultural to the day when Paul was writing it. See, in ancient culture, especially ancient Near Eastern cultures, <coughs> the family was the primary unit. You found your value and significance by being part of a larger family. The family as a whole was more important than you, more important than your needs, more important than your spouse's individual needs. Your first allegiances were to your family, then secondary to your own marriage, then second to your own marriage. So when we read this passage in Ephesus, this would have shocked them. Put my marriage in front of my family? What are you talking about? In that day and age, children did not leave their fathers and mothers. In fact, they usually would just add a room onto the house and continue the family trade. It was common to have several generations of family under one roof. And into this ancient familial culture, God says, leave your father and mother and hold fast, be soldered to your wife. It's a profound text. In my almost 20 years of ministry, I have witnessed the absolute devastation caused by leaving problems. But before we get into that, I want you to look at one more thing from this text that shows us that marriage is meant to hold primacy in your life. Look at verses 28 and 29. In the same way, husbands should love their wives. Look at this as their own bodies. There's a martial art of, called judo. And judo, when somebody's attacking you, you use the weight of their own, them pressuring in, you use their own force to throw them. This is kind of like gospel judo here. God is using our self-centeredness against us for our own good. He says, oh yeah, you know how you love yourself? Love yourself, love your wife as you love yourself, as you love your own body. Keep reading, 28. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. What's he saying here? Paul's trying to point out something to us. We all take care of, we're meant to take care of our health. Why? Because our health is foundational to everything else in our life. What happens if you put your job before your health and wellness? You start working longer hours. You start eating out all the time. What, ha what happens? Well, eventually you're going to die and you lose both your career and your health. See, your health sets the direction of your life and so does your marriage. And if everything in your life is going well, but your marriage is weak, that weakness will affect the rest of your life. 
your work life will suffer, your other relationships will suffer, your physical health can even suffer. But on the flip side, if everything in your life is falling apart, but your marriage is strong, you can endure. You can go through almost anything if your marriage is strong. A good marriage can keep your head above water when everything else is trying to drown you. Paul's saying, you take care of yourself first, like it's when we're in the airport or the airplane, and they say, it's crazy, I know, but if, we, if, this cat, if this thing loses oxygen or loses pressure, a thing's gonna pop down from the ceiling, right? And what are you supposed to do? Put yours on first. Then take care of your kids. Then take care of your partner, right? Why? If you're unconscious, you ain't helping nobody. Paul's saying the same thing with marriage. He's making that connection with marriage. Marriage has that kind of power. If your marriage is on the right track, it can actually give the rest of your life power. It can change the course of your whole life. So Paul is saying here, make sure that you put no human relationship before your spouse. Now listen, this is not advice that you can take it or leave it. God doesn't give advice. This is God's law. Now that might sound harsh. God wrote the laws of the universe. Gravity his idea. You try to break gravity. You try to go against gravity. You, it breaks you. Get on top of the roof. In my heart, I feel I can fly. Right? Oh, you're feeling, okay. Jump off that roof, see what happens. Gravity doesn't care about your feelings. He, God gave you the laws of your body, oxygen. I feel like, no, I get into all kind of stuff. Right? My little girls think they're mermaids, right? They've asked for mermaid tails, right? They need oxygen. God made your body need oxygen. You are not a mermaid. You can't stay down there very long. It's going to go bad for you. You break God's laws, they break you. It's not mean. Well, the same thing goes for the laws of great marriages. If you choose to break them, they bite back and break you. God's laws always swing back. Now listen, here are five ways we give away the priority in our marriages to pseudo-spouses. God says, your marriage is meant to be the top human relationship in your life. Here are five ways we, we allow pseudo-spouses to get in between us and our spouse. First one's clear in the text. Leave your father and mother, right? Hold fast to your wife. Now, obviously, we don't have this as much anymore. We don't have too many married couples moving in with their parents. That's one thing. Move out, start your own family, do your own thing. But it's more than just physical like that. When the Bible says that we're to, to leave these other relationships and hold fast to our spouse, it isn't just talking about moving out. This means emotionally and mentally moving on, leaving as well. It's a fresh start for the couple that you must leave your old family patterns and rhythms. Now, when I'm doing premarital counseling, actually any marital counseling, this is really difficult and it's a common blind spot for most young couples. See, most young couples grew up with, this is how my family did it, and the other person grew up with, this is how my family did it, and they're both thinking, that's how we're going to do it. But those things aren't in line with one another. And sometimes you can have one person had a really bad upbringing or broken home. And the other person had a good one. And this person's just like, we'll do whatever. Your, your family was better. We'll just do whatever they wanted. No, that's not what God calls us to do. As a new entity, two becoming one, you must decide for yourselves as a couple, what are the roles going to look like for you and your spouse? Now, the Bible has a lot to say about roles. And we're going to get to that in the coming weeks. But there's also a lot of freedom. The Bible does not say that moms have to stay home with the kids. The Bible does not say that only women do housework. The Bible does not say that only men have careers. The Bible does not say those things. There's a great amount of freedom in this for the believer. But 
You do have to talk about it and you do have to wrestle with what God does say. And then you have to make your decision together or you are in trouble. Your mom or his mom or her mom, whatever, the roles of the family can come between you as a couple. Remember a man and I, when we were engaged, we sat down and we talked and we said, what is our family going to look like? How are we going to do holidays? Who's going to do the majority of the housework? Who pays the bills? Now listen, all of these things are open except where there are clear biblical principles. We can't just outsource our parental responsibilities to someone else. If you both want full-time careers, then you probably shouldn't have children. You don't get to just let someone else parent your kids for 40 hours a week or more. You're neglecting the responsibility God's put in you. Now, so people get really offended and really hurt by it. I realize sometimes necessity makes us, ha- we have to do that sometimes by necessity. We're providentially hindered. I get it. But just, do you think that daycare provider or babysitter or whoever can better parent your child than you? Well, absolutely not. Okay, so would it be better for you when they're younger or whatever to parent your child? You have to make these decisions together. Now, it might be the man that stays home. I don't have a problem with that. But we are called to parent our children. How are we going to educate our kids? What does God say about that? He tells us to love God with all our mind. He says to raise our kids in the fear and admonition of the Lord. How are we going to do that? We have to teach our kids from a Christian worldview. How does, you know, every subject relate to God? How are we going to do that? What's it going to look like for us as a couple? We got to come together and make that decision. You cannot just come into a marriage saying, well, this is how my parents did it. This is how we're going to do it. You're abdicating your responsibility as a couple to your parents, hoping they knew what was best. Your parents can't set set these things. You have to leave and cleave. We've got all these rhythms from our parents. Every, you know, we've got, I can't get into it all. Another way people commonly fail to leave their parents is if you haven't forgiven them for mistakes they made while raising you. And you say things like, I will never spank my children because my mother hit me in anger all the time. Or my dad ruled with an iron fist, so I'm going to be the mom who tries to be best friends with their kids and never disciplines them. You haven't left yet. In a strange way, your parents are still controlling you. You are reacting to their failures, but it's still them who are in control. A marriage built on the gospel is a fresh start. That your marriage is a part of the new creation. God's redeeming two people. He's putting them together. And this marriage is pointing forward to the final restoration of all things. So one, easy parents. Failing to leave our parents and cleave to our new spouse is a pseudo spouse that can destroy our marriage. Secondly, career. I've kind of already alluded to it. If you put work above your marriage, you're more than likely to lose both. I've had so many people tell me their marriage is not going well, and I look at whoever it is that's working too much, and they say to me, as soon as I get through this season, it's going to be better. And he believes it or she believes it in her heart, but it's a lie. Because the season, another season just pops up. And after 10 years of that, 20 years of that, 30 years of that, so many times people are just fed up. You've been holding fast to your career. And I'm not going to play second fiddle anymore. I could go on and on. I don't have time. Third, I've already mentioned it, children. This one's going to sting. I think it's probably the most common pseudo-spouse that ruins marriages. But unfortunately, its effects aren't often felt until down the road. Oftentimes, when you get an empty nest, when the kids finally... So 
dad says, oh my goodness, look at all this responsibility I have to, I have to provide for. This is just, and it's not always dads, but I'm just, help me, be, give, be generous with me, please. Dad's, he throws his life into his career because he's wanting to provide for the family. The career becomes his pseudo-spouse. Mom throws her life into the kids. The kids become their pseudo-spouse. And dad's loving the job and mom's loving the kids and then the kids leave and dad's starting to think about retirement and all of a sudden, uh-oh, we've been, we've been loving a pseudo-spouse for 20 years and we kiss, but there's no sparks. We're partners. And this is a cataclysmic event. Now many rediscover, push back in, re- remember the gospel, push back in, rediscover the love they had at first. But that's not the way it has to be. Guys, parenting is such an overwhelming responsibility and it involves so much of our heart and so much of our time, but our kids are not our primary relationship. Our marriages, and the best thing your kids need is to see that dad loves mom more than he loves the kids and mom loves dad more than she loves the kids. They need to know your second fiddle. They need to know that the marriage is more important than the children. It's good for them. Lastly, or four and five, I'll put these two together because I'm running out of time. Friends and hobbies. There should be no one and nothing under God that takes priority over your spouse. If you're going out with your buddies at night and you're not coming home to eat dinner with the family, most likely that could be a pseudo spouse. Now here's the deal. I could go into that. I can, friends and hobbies, it, they, can, they can easily come between you and your, your wife, you and your husband. I'm not going to go into it. I don't have time. But here's the question. What if one person thinks they are putting the marriage first and the other does not? By definition, you're not. You cannot see this because of your own self-centeredness and the way your heart self-justifies. I know I've been home at seven o'clock the last two weeks, nearly every day in a row, but it's just a difficult season. They will understand this is the, the pressure I'm under at work. I have to do this. First off, there's a lot of lies in that statement. I don't mean you're lying because you actually believe it but there's a lot of self-justifying. You actually need to listen to your spouse and say, I am working too much. I've been putting my work in front of you. See, we can't see this, but our spouse can. Now, here's the only problem, and I've came across this sometimes in marriage counseling. The only problem is when both of you share the same pseudo-spouse, For example, if you are both driven by the need to achieve and make a certain amount of money or to live in a certain neighborhood, you are both likely worshiping the same idol and you share the same pseudo-spouse. So here it is. Your normal isn't Christian. You will need a Christian friend, an MC leader, or a pastor to point it out to you. But nobody's pointing it out to be a jerk or to crush you. They're pointing it out because they love you. Now, for those of us who are married, I want you to see how important this is. See, when the, when the passion, the in-love feelings of marriage cools, it is natural Hear me, it is natural, it is normal to go to something or someone else to get your needs met. It's normal. Marriage is cooling off, I go to the kids, I go to my career, I go back to my parents, I go to my friends, I go to my hobbies. 
But to do that consistently is to kill your marriage softly. It's a cold death. Death that comes through neglect. And you might be surprised the day your spouse walks out the door, but you shouldn't be. Because you've been given the priority of your marriage relationship to someone else for how long? Now, some of us, we might stay married for another 40 years, but it's not a Christian marriage. It's a marriage that hasn't been nourished and cherished like the apostle says here in our text. It's a marriage that hasn't left the pseudo spouses and cleaved to their spouse. Paul wants us to see no other relationship is more important. As I close here, here's where things get really interesting. When Paul talks about marriage in this text, he says, this is the words he used, this mystery is profound. And the word profound in the Greek is megas. So Paul literally says marriage is a mega mystery. And here's the mystery. Christian marriage is meant to be a small picture of the love that Christ has for the church. Christian marriage is a picture of the gospel. Please hear me. Christian parenting is not the mystery. Christian friendship is not the mystery. When Paul is searching for metaphors and spiritual realities to define what the marriage is and to show a picture of the gospel, he says it's marriage, Christian marriage between a man and a female and a covenant of marriage. That's the metaphor Paul uses. Think about that. You can play with the implications of this, chase them down in your mind today. That Jesus didn't, he didn't fall in love with you. He hasn't lost his mind. You haven't flipped his emotional or hormonal switches in such a way that he becomes suddenly blind to all your mistakes, flaws, and weaknesses. That's what falling in love is like. Jesus didn't fall in love with you. He chose to love you. He picked you. He elected you. He chose to solder himself to you, be united with you, to marry you, to join himself to you for better or worse. Now just think about Jesus on the cross. There's no way he had all the feels for you on the cross. No, but he was loving you like no one else has. He had every reason to leave you. You failed him a million times. He had every reason to walk out on his unfaithful spouse, but he stayed. When it got to the point of shedding his own blood for you, he stayed. He didn't bail on you. He didn't walk away. He didn't move on to someone easier to love. Jesus stayed to love you to the end. And that gospel reality is what enables us to love our spouse. Let me pray. Father, I pray that the gospel would penetrate our hearts no matter how many times we've heard it and you would produce fruit. Fruit that changes our attitudes, changes our feelings, changes our obedience, enable us to love our spouse like you love us. Enable us to turn from pseudo-spouses. Friends, career, the kids, all those things are important. They're all good, but not when they come between us and our spouse. Would you enable us to see our own sin this morning and to confess, repent, and change? And for those who feel the weight of guilt and the weight of shame, 
Maybe they're just mad. They're just angry. Would you soften their heart and let them see that you've already died for them? You've already gave them whatever it is they're looking for. You've given it to them. And this morning, they can confess their sin, repent, and come to the table with kind of greedy, sinful hands, self-centered hands, and open them up. And you give us your body, and you give us your blood. You love us in spite of our sinfulness. Your love is strong. We worship you in Jesus' name. Amen.